You're listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. Good evening, everybody. Uh, I'm going to start with probably putting words in people's mouth like 2,000 years ago, but no, that's all right. They're dead now. Uh, so I w- I'm going to imagine that if we went back about 2,000 years ago into the Jewish synagogues and maybe even the temple and uh, would ask them if God came into this synagogue or the Messiah came into this synagogue today, what would he think? Would he be very happy with what's going on in this synagogue or in the temple in Jerusalem? I would imagine, and here's the words I'm putting in their mouth, I'd imagine, oh yeah, we, uh, we study the, you know, it was the Old Testament, they didn't call it that, that was just their scriptures. We, we study that, we, you know, do our best, we, we give, uh, we help the needy, and, you know, we're, we're good religious people. Now, Jesus did come, God did come into a lot of those synagogues and into that temple. It's a hypothetical thing, I know I'm imagining, but to, to, to picture this. Jesus did come into that temple. I would imagine, again, if you went into the temple and said, what would God think if He came in here? I don't think they'd say He would flip the tables and yell at us and make a whip and drive everyone out. I don't think they would have thought that was going to happen. That's what Jesus did. He goes into the temple, he flips the table, he makes a whip and whips everything out and says, you know, this is supposed to be a house of prayer and you've made it into a den of thieves. He went into the synagogues and, and said that, you know, for your traditions, your uh, man-made commandments, you're not allowing people to be healed on the Sabbath and you guys are wicked and you're doing what is wrong. I don't think they would have imagined God in the flesh saying that to them. But that's what he said. And they rejected him. Now today, I think we need to ask ourselves the same question. And I think it's a difficult one. Right? Now we know when Jesus comes back, it's going to be revealed to everybody. I mean, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's, he's coming back in a very clear, direct way is what the Bible says. But again, just imagine if he came back in the way he came the first time in sort of a in not as you know a dramatic way, and, and he came into the church, and we would say, "Oh yeah, Jesus, he'd be very happy here." We we teach the Bible, we just sing songs, you know, we're we're doing our best. And yeah, maybe, but I think that's what they would have said two thousand years ago too. We need to ask ourselves if Jesus came in here tonight, what do you think he would do? What do you think he would think? What do you think he would say to us? And I think we would have a lot of the same defenses they had 2,000 years ago. And we need to, and we're the equivalent of the religious people 2,000 years ago. And we're the people taking God's name upon ourselves, Christians. We might consider Jesus might say the same kind of stuff to us as he said back then. He might see all the, the waste that we have and the money that we spent not giving to people, but we can look all around us and see what's going on. Right? He might, see us, you know, singing our hearts out, but say, hey, I know what you were doing an hour just before you came here. Right? I think that's what he did to the religious people then. Let's consider that tonight. It's not pleasant, and things are different now, but we don't want to sin so that grace may abound. We, we do that so much. We just say, oh, it's new covenant now. We're forgiven. But no, we don't sin so that grace can abound. If anything, we should take it more seriously because God died to forgive us. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit, but this is... Right, what we should think about to consider. And that includes the church outside these doors. Yeah, we talk about that a lot, but let's talk about the church in these doors and what's going on in this place, the River Christian Fellowship. And think about, all right, I looked into this a little bit. What would happen? What would be the impact in this world if Christians, those who took God's label upon themselves, 
If we did what we were asked to do, if we did that, there's some statistics on it. If every Christian tithed, and that's not a New Testament command, but it says to be a joyful giver. Again, I think if anything, we should be more serious about things now that God has died for us than before. If every Christian tithed gave 10% of their income, they estimate that uh, there would be $165 billion extra dollars to give around and help out. In about five years, $25 billion devoted entirely to world hunger could be, for the most part, eliminated. According to these statistics, and I didn't write down my source, but Google, what would happen if Christians tithe? Okay, it would, it'll be the first thing that pops up. Uh, in uh, five years, about $12 billion could, for the most part, eliminate illiteracy around the world. In about five years, $15 billion could solve most of the water and sanitation problems around the world. $1 billion could fund all overseas missions work. And that would leave $100 billion left over. And that's the impact that could be made if every Christian tithed, or everyone who took that label gave 10% of their income to God's kingdom. Again, but then assuming that those who took the money used it in a wise way. Okay, that's another part of the problem. Well, that's, that's the one part. Okay, the, what about, um, as far as what's being taught and the things that we're learning? I did write down these statistics. It comes from Barna Group. 41% of practicing Christians believe that what works for you is the only truth you can know. About 40% of practicing Christians believe in uh, relativity. 76% of practicing Christians, that's the label they identified, practicing Christians, not just nominal, practicing. 76% believe that the best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. Three quarters of practicing Christians believe that. 76% again of practicing Christians say that you should not criticize someone's life choices. So three quarters of Christians say, you know, any sin you're doing is just fine. Not my business. 40% of practicing Christians believe any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. Any kind of sexual expression. Now, what this means, again, if we're thinking, all right, we're going to take on our, our defenses. If Jesus came here, what would he think? This tells us in the church at large, there's a problem with teaching, a problem with learning, or both, really. Okay, that So many people believe these things that are contrary to Scripture, which means a lot of people aren't reading the Bible. Another one, 1% of church leaders say that Churches are doing a good job at discipling. 1% of church leaders. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples. 1% of church leaders say we're doing a good job at that. I don't think Jesus will be very happy about that. There are 116,000 kids in foster care waiting for a home in the United States. According to the census, there's a couple hundred million Christians in the United States. You do the math, that's one out of... I'm not going to do the math. You do it. Okay. Several thousand Christians taking in one kid. Okay. That whole problem will be gone. How many people in churches go through suffering and nobody offers a hand to help? How many in this church? How many people are living in sin and have never been confronted and it's blatant and no one has ever held you accountable? How many have no one to hold them accountable? Now the... What I'm getting at is we, as a church at large, but let's not focus so much on that, we're at the River Christian Fellowship. This church, we're not getting it done. If Jesus came in here, what would he say? What would he think? I mean, these statistics show we have a discipleship problem, we have a teaching problem, we have a learning problem, we have a giving problem. We have all sorts of problems, and we're not getting it done. Most of these problems could be gone if we were doing what we were asked. Think of what we could do for God's kingdom in this community in Twin Falls if everyone were doing what Jesus asked, or close to, close to. And it goes back to growing. Discipleship, make disciples. Growing in relationship with God and with each other. That's how we hold ourselves accountable and do these things. The people are coming in the door, but they're not growing. 
God, Jesus didn't say, go therefore and get butts in the seat in the church. He said to make disciples. People come in, but we're not growing. We're not growing as a body. We're not, we're not growing together. We're not getting God's work done. Now, th- these problems are, when we look at what Peter says about the church tonight, we should say these are unacceptable. We should not allow this from us as a body. The, the sort of laziness and the not doing anything and the not coming together that's going on here. We shouldn't accept this. That's what Peter is saying here. We're going to read in 1 Peter chapter 2. And he's telling us how to live. This, these two books, the two letters that Peter wrote, he's writing them to the, to the new Christians. It's only been about 30 years since Jesus resurrected and went back to heaven. And these are new Christians and, and they need to know how to live. And Peter saw Jesus and lived with Jesus and walked alongside Jesus. And he's writing to them, and here's how you guys are supposed to live. And we've seen a few aspects of that already. He calls us pilgrims or exiles or wanderers, travelers. And you could translate that in a lot of different ways that we as Christians are not citizens of this world anymore. We're just traveling through it. And our citizenship is in heaven now where Jesus has brought us into his kingdom. He's told us how we live in suffering to be thinking forward, how we um, grow and how we live as God's children. And tonight we'll see how we live in the church. What is the church supposed to do? How do we get things done? How do we grow together as a body and do what God has told us to do? And I said before I was getting a little ahead of myself, I don't know where I should put it. I'll probably say it like five or six times, but not to... Well, I, I've just, just cause I've heard a lot and not only heard it, but I've thought it myself. Oh, we're new covenant now. You know, Jesus forgives us. I, let's not use grace as an excuse to sin. It specifically says that in Romans. Should we sin so that grace may abound? No. Let's not think because we're in the new covenant and Jesus has died for us to forgive us that, oh, we can just kind of sit back and come to church and hear a feel, feel good message, eat some donuts and go out and do nothing. Let's not have that mentality because God died to make us into this church. That's what Peter is going to tell us. So we'll start uh, chapter 2 at verse 4. Verses 4 through 10, how we live in the church. What he tells us is that because of who God has made us to be as a church, we need to do His work. And just to define church if you don't know, church is people, not buildings. The church is God's people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, born again believers. That is the church. The building is just the, what they call the place where the church gathers, the, the, uh, the assembly of believers. Right? So when we talk about the church, we're talking about people, not about buildings or organizations. And there's, you can kind of separate this into two categories. The, Theologically, they call it the uh, invisible church. Okay, those are the true believers. Those who will be in God's kingdom. And then there's the visible church. That's what we see here. Many people in the visible church are not part of the invisible church because they're faking it. They're not living stones as we'll see tonight. You know, the church is that the born-again believers in Christ who are who have spiritual life within them. So let's read verses 4 through 10. And then we'll jump back and dig into it. So it says, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word, to which they also were appointed." But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. 
This is the word of the Lord. We'll look at okay, the church, how we live in the church. And there's three big points, because it's a sermon, there's always three big points, is that we, we come to Jesus, we build on Jesus, and then we proclaim Jesus. In first verses 4 and 5, he's talking about we come to Jesus. As the church, we come to Jesus. This is how we get God's work done. We come to Jesus. Coming to Him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Hey, these two verses are very important for what we do as a church and where, where we start our identity. And he starts with coming to Him, coming to Jesus. And the, the coming, the verb tense in Greek is an ongoing action in the present. Hey, we're continually coming to Jesus, in other words. And not weekly or monthly or biannually at Easter and Christmas, but continually coming to Jesus as to a living stone. And that's where it starts. Coming to Jesus repeatedly. And if, if you're not doing that, you got, you're going to have to ask yourself, are you a living stone? Are you part of the invisible church? The true church? Because we want to continually come to Jesus when we are born again. That's, that's part of it. We want to get to know Him better. It's an ongoing thing. And it says that Jesus coming to Him as to a living stone. That's important. We'll, we'll come back to that. A living stone, rejected indeed by men. Now this kind of goes to what I was saying at the beginning, how when Jesus came to the temple and to the synagogue, and He criticized them for their false religious pretense and and all the nonsense that they were doing, they rejected Him. I mean, spoiler alert, Jesus died. Jesus was crucified by religious people. They rejected Him. People rejected Jesus for that reason, for Him coming and telling them things that they didn't like to hear. That's one of the things that Jesus does. He also tells us things we do like to hear, but we leave out the things we don't like to hear. And they rejected Him, but chosen by God and precious. It doesn't matter who the people picked, it's it's who God picks. Then he says, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. Okay, so this whole stone picture, let's, let's consider that for a minute, because Peter makes this really beautiful picture for us of, of stones in the temple. And, and what he's talking about with, with all this, uh, stone imagery is he's referring to the temple. And first of all, it's a beautiful picture of inclusion for the Gentiles he's writing to. So Peter is writing mostly to Gentiles, non-Jewish people who didn't have a Jewish background. And the temple was for Jews. Only Jews were allowed in. And now Peter is calling them a spiritual house. And that they are living stones as part of the temple. So all this stone terminology, Peter is referring to them as the temple of God. That's what that means. And, and this is very mind-blowing. And this is these are the things to consider why we should not accept our failures as a church. Because here's what it means that we can come to Jesus as a living stone. And we ourselves become living stones as we come to Jesus. Let's consider the Old Covenant. Before Jesus came. And let's say you wanted to be close to God. You wanted to come to God. And you wanted a close relationship with God. Now the temple was built by, the first temple was built by Solomon. It was kind of modeled after the tabernacle that God told Moses in the wilderness as he was taking the the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He told Moses, here's how you need to worship me. It's very specific, the measurements and, and all the things inside the tabernacle. And God was telling Moses, here's how you worship me. And then Solomon based the temple off of that tabernacle. And so imagine you're in the wilderness and you want to go, you want to be close to God. You want to come to God. Well, God had said, I will dwell in one room. Yeah, he's God of of the world, but he said he will make his spirit known in the holy of holies, in the one room in the back of the tabernacle. And if you wanted to get there, there were a lot of barriers you had to overcome to come to him, as it says here. You would come up to the to the fence. There is a fence surrounding the tabernacle and the courtyard and all the stuff outside. 
Hey, can I come in? I want, I want to be close to God. Well, are you an Israelite? Nope. You can't come in. That's as close as you can get. So there's one barrier. You couldn't go past the fence if you weren't an Israelite. That's as close as you could get. Well, let's say you get into the fence and you come up to the tabernacle, the tent. Man, I want to be close to God. Can, can I come in? Were you a Levite? Nope. Then you can't come in. Only Levites are allowed in. Okay, Levites were the, the tribe of Israel dedicated to serving the tabernacle and doing God's work in there. So unless you were of the tribe of Levi, you couldn't come in. Unless you were a priest, you couldn't come in. Well, let's say you could even go in. You could go in the first room. And God is in the Holy of Holies in the second room. Well, I want to go in there. God is dwelling in there. I want to be close to Him. Well, you're not the high priest. You can't go in. There's all these barriers to getting close to God. An Israelite, a Levite, the high priest, and even then it was once a year on the Day of Atonement. Now... See, when Jesus was crucified, that, that veil was torn. That was separating the first room and the second room. To say, we can come to Him as to a living stone. We can come to the throne boldly, it says even in Hebrews. Boldly we can go to Him and ask for grace and mercy to help in time of need. And we can do that without all these barriers because now God lives within us. See, this is one of the reasons why we shouldn't accept some of these failures that we have, is we have this privilege that for thousands of years, God's people were waiting for. And we can do it, but so often, no, I don't want to pray. No, I don't want to do that. We can come to Him as a living stone. So we have the temple, which is based off of the tabernacle. And here's what what Peter describes us. Let's go back here. You also, verse 5, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. And so you, individually, are a living stone. I hope. You are a living stone. Together, we are built into God's spiritual house, the temple. That's an amazing statement. To consider that. And that means each stone is equally important. Each stone is a living stone. Not a dead one. Not one who's faking. Now there's one stone that is more important. We'll get to that in a minute. It's not the pastor stone. We're all equally important to becoming the temple on this earth. And it says elsewhere in the Bible that we are God's temple because God dwells within us in the Holy Spirit. So we need to consider all these things as we consider us as a church, as a body of believers coming together. You individually are a living stone, equally important as everyone. You need all of them. Maybe if your stone is pulled out of the temple, the temple's not going to fall down. Maybe. But some rain could get in. A bird could fly in and wreak havoc in there. Right? Each, each stone is important. If a stone is missing, if a stone is not doing its job, that compromises the whole thing. And that's where we all, each of us, and own that individually. We kind of go with the flow and say, yeah, we all, we need to step up. No, you need to step up. I need to step up. And do my job as a living stone for God's temple. Now what this ties into, and I'm going to probably go too long on this because I get really excited, but each living stone, you, they're living because God is living in them. And that means they have gifts, spiritual gifts. And what I want to do, I'm going to go quickly through the gifts. Okay, not that this is exhaustive, but it's you know a list I found of, of the New Testament gifts, the spiritual gifts. Because I want you to picture... How each of these things play together. And if one of these parts is not working, the temple is not as strong as it should be. That we all need each other. We're all equally important to do God's work, to be built up into this spiritual house. And so first of all, you need to think of what your gifts are and are you using them? If not, then you're not helping the temple. You're living as a dead stone. You need to be using spiritual gifts. And... There's a difference of spiritual gifts versus talent and stuff. So like, I was playing guitar a minute ago. Playing guitar is not a spiritual gift. But there are spiritual gifts that can be involved in that, such as serving or whatever. So I'm going to go quickly through. But here's, I'm not going to give you time to think about like, what gifts do I have? It's to, to paint a picture of how we need all of these gifts working in God's temple with His people. Or there's those weak parts. 
And so if you have a gift, and I'm going to say up front, I don't see all these gifts being used in this church. right? So we need people to step up with these gifts and say, I need to use this somewhere. We need opportunities to do that, to build each other up. You know, there's a lot of failings about things like that. That's where we all need to step up. So, yeah, I've built that up enough. Here's, here's the gifts. Not all of them, but the list I found that was very exhaustive. 24 of them, but I'm going to go quickly. To show, we, it's, it's a team thing. <clears throat> you might have multiple, nobody has all of them. All equally important. So there's the gift of administration. The, the gift of steering God's body, the temple, toward God-given goals by planning. It's setting, here's a plan, here's how we get it done. And there's the gift of apostle. That you're sent to new places, governing large bodies of the church, <clears throat> overseeing many bodies. The gift of celibacy, that you're able to serve God without distraction. Hey, no kids, no wife. You know, sometimes that would be very, that would help out with the time aspect to, to serve in the temple. Yeah. yeah I'm not saying I, I want that gift or I have that gift. I'm saying if you have that gift, hey, that's really helpful. <clears throat> There's the gift of discernment. Hey, to distinguish truth from error. And this is very important for people like me as I'm up here talking that you can tell me, hey, that was wrong. That's not what the Bible says. Or when we're in small groups, hey, that's, that's getting kind of weird. There's the gift of evangelism to be able to go and bring people in and make disciples. The gift of exhortation that you're able to help people be who God wants them to be, whether that's encouraging or rebuking. That's a spiritual gift. The spiritual gift of faith that nothing seems to shake them. They're, they're always able to encourage others and, and think about how these all work together. So if you don't have this gift and your faith is shaken, you know someone in the body, in the temple, a living stone who has that gift. And man, how do you keep that faith? And they encourage you. you. They build you up. There's people with the gift of giving. And where, hey, my one of the things is, is a living stone, I'm just going to give money. You guys want to start a ministry? Here's some money. Hey, we want to do an outreach? Here's some money. There's the gift of healing. People that God uses to heal people physically sometimes, but spiritually as well to, to be able to speak words of comfort and healing over people so that when you're hurting, you know who to go to who can pray for you for healing. People with the gift of helping that whatever needs to be done to free up other people, they just step up and do it so other people can do it. Like the, the deacons in the book of Acts that the, the leaders in the church were kind of bogged down with distributing the food and people stepped up. Let us help so that you can pray and teach God's word. Like how I pick up the donuts on Sunday morning. If anyone wants to step up and do that, just say, to free up other people. There's people with the gift of hospitality that, hey, let's start a a Bible study in my house. Let's do that. Because I have that gift of being open. People with the gift of knowledge, that they learn as much possible as there is to learn about the Bible. So when you got a question, you know who to go to. People with the gift of leadership, who can get people to follow them. That's who a leader is. The best servants, people who people follow, are leaders. There's people with the gift of martyrdom, who die for their faith. Probably, probably not here, but it is a gift. There's people with the gift of mercy. They're just able to help people. They hear a need, they just do it. Drop food off at someone's house or whatever. Whatever it takes to help someone. So that we're all encouraged by that. So we know when we're hurt, someone's going to be there to help. That's a gift we need. There's people with the gift of miracles. That God uses them as, as they pray to do amazing, miraculous things. People with the gift of missionary who are able to go out and spread the word in God's kingdom. That doesn't mean in other countries necessarily. There's people with the gift of pastoring. That means shepherding, making sure the wolves don't come in and making sure that people grow and develop. There's people with the gift of service. They just see something not being done. I'm just going to go do it. People with the gift of teaching are able to teach the Bible. People with the gift of tongues and interpretation that are able to give whatever through through their prayer language and that being interpreted. There are those with the gift of voluntary poverty that they live well beneath their means so they're able to give more. People with the gift of wisdom, able to apply the Bible to life. People with the gift of prophecy are able to speak God's word into your life at that exact moment. Now think about all these gifts. I know that was quick, but my purpose in that is to say we need all those gifts working together. 
living stones. You are a living stone. You need to know your gift and how to use it in the body. If you're not using your gift in the body, I don't know if you can call yourself a living stone to build up God's people. Nobody has all the gifts except Jesus. None of us have all the gifts. And all the stones are equally important. And we need all these gifts in the church. And I don't see them all. I don't know who to turn to for some of these things. I don't know who's going to exhort me and, and build me up. But if you think about them now interacting, this is where I get really excited. And I do this sometimes just, just for fun. I'm not going to do it tonight because I'm gone long enough on it. But to think, how do these gifts work together? Like someone with the gift of giving and the gift of exhortation, the gift of teaching, that those all work together. It's like a team. We need all these gifts in the church. We need to stir each other up. Think of the gifts you have and how you can use them in the body. That's what we're here for. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. So the individual, the living stone, to build up God's spiritual house. So this should be easy to see now. If we have all these gifts working together, then we can get more things done. We can do what God has asked us to do as a church, not just to come and hear some stuff and then go do, you know, whatever. Then it also says, though, as we come to Jesus... We're being built up a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. So we're not just the temple, we're the priests. And they used to be the only ones, the priests were the only ones with access into the temple. And Peter's calling us the priests now. We have access to God. We can all pray for each other. Which I think is pretty much step one as far as building up this body. We need to start praying for each other. Because we're all living stones. We all need each other. I think that's the first thing we need to do because we're all priests. We can all do that for each other. Now, the other thing about this is we're the temple and the priests. The temple is passive. It's where God dwells. The priests are active doing the work. We are both. We are both actively doing God's work and we are passively receiving the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to do these things. The priest in the temple. So we don't just sit back, okay, I'm the temple, God does all the work. We're the priest too. We work too, and we leave that part out so much. Sanctification is God working, us working hand in hand with Him to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. By the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the flesh. It's both. It's God and us working together. It's all Him for saying we're innocent of our sin, but it's us working together, growing into a temple. For the purpose then of offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we come to Jesus and offer through Jesus. And all the people do this. And not just the leaders, everybody. Everybody comes to Jesus and offers up spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus. Now this picture should really help us to see how we're failing and how we can move forward from that. How we can keep going forward. And it should also take care of this idea of the consumer church. Well, I went to a church, they didn't have the program I wanted, so I'm not going to go there. Start the program. Do something. You're a living stone. You don't have to just sit back and find another place that's already doing it. You do it. I didn't feel the Spirit there. Well, exhort people to live by the Spirit. Right? Where if... If they're teaching heresy, that's one thing. But if you just don't like the vibe there, you need to get plugged in somewhere and and get rid of this consumer church idea that I'm just going to take, take, take and consume. But church is about giving and serving one another. And part of the problem, if not most of it, is discipleship. Do most people in churches know this? Do we know we're God's temple, living stones? Do we know we're a holy priesthood? Or do we just hear, you know, God has a plan for your life. We need to know this. We need to grow. Now, I spend a lot of time here. We'll go a little quickly through the next part. This is, this is about us. Hey, we come to Jesus. He builds us, turns us into living stones to become God's temple and a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. But we also need to build on Jesus. That's the next part. He's the stone that's most important. In verses 6 through 8. 
Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. So we build on Jesus. We come to Jesus and we build on Jesus. We can't do any of this without Jesus. You know, some people are able to fake it, to not build on Jesus. Jesus talked about this a lot. That's what he was very critical of with the religious leaders and people in his day, is this faking it, this, this thing where Jesus said, people will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, you know, didn't we do this and that? And he'll say, get out from here. I never knew you. And it's faking it, not building on the cornerstone, which is Jesus. There's the parable he tells of the wheat and the tares, that the wheat is good, the tares are weeds, but you can't tell the difference right away. And God will take care of that. But there's, there's the fakers here, the dead stones. But we as living stones are being built on the cornerstone of Jesus. So look at verse 6. It's contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. This is one of my favorite metaphors of Jesus. He's the cornerstone of his temple. So we together are the temple. Individually, we are living stones, but he is the cornerstone. And the cornerstone is the biggest, most important stone in the structure. So all the living stones are equal. Jesus, the cornerstone, he is the most important one. The biggest and most important part of the temple. The cornerstone is the first stone that was put down when they were going to build a structure out of stone. You need to have the cornerstone first. And that had to be perfect. Because if the cornerstone wasn't solid and perfectly placed, they would, they would measure everything about the building from that cornerstone. If the cornerstone wasn't exactly laid out right, the structure would come down eventually. It might take a while. There might just be some things out of place for a little bit. But that's not structurally sound if the cornerstone is not put down exactly right. It's the most important piece of the building, and without it, the whole thing crumbles down. And Isaiah, this is quoted from Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, prophesied that God would lay down a cornerstone for His temple, that anyone who believes on Him would not be put to shame. So Jesus is that cornerstone. We build on Him. And He has to be in the right place in our lives. We're not going to be able to build our lives on Him. It says in verse 7, though, Therefore to you who believe, He is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were appointed. See, this isn't the first time Peter has said something like this, where he said, you've rejected this cornerstone. Okay, if you didn't reject it, he's precious. But to those who are disobedient, they reject him because he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Peter in Acts chapter 4 said this to the religious leaders of that day, <clears throat> after God had used Peter to heal someone, he said this, by what power or by what name have you done this? That's the religious leaders. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. See, Peter told them then too, you've rejected this cornerstone. See, the cornerstone is so important that it had to be thoroughly inspected before you put it down. Again, there couldn't be any flaw in it. And what Jesus was saying to the religious people and what Peter was saying, you guys should have known better. He was prophesied already. You should have known better. You should have thoroughly inspected him. Now, is that true of us, the religious people of our day? 
we should know better. Right? That's why we don't use grace as an excuse to sin. And so as this temple picture, and here's the, here's the whole thing, Jesus is the cornerstone. He's already been laid down by God. He laid down his life and he forgave us of our sin. He is the most important part of it. We individually are a living stone with a job to do to be built up into God's temple, to make sacrifices acceptable to him. But the problem Peter here is talking about is he is constantly rejected. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The builders rejected him. The religious people rejected him. See, building on the cornerstone is not saying, look how much God loves you. He has a plan for your life. That's not a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The cornerstone is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Because to build on the cornerstone first is an admission of guilt. If God were to judge me by my deeds, I am guilty and I'm going to hell. That's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And we can kind of brush it, oh yeah, yeah, I know, I know I'm guilty. No, but really, to know you're guilty by God's holy law, to know that there's nothing you can do to avoid hell, that's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But then the cornerstone, Jesus comes to this earth to live perfectly unlike us. And to die on the cross so that we can be forgiven, so that we have a place in His kingdom, so we can be God's temple. And He rises from death to show us He defeated that. And He's ruling and reigning in heaven now, being Lord over the whole church. And that's the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That stumbles people. But it's what saves people. And that's the cornerstone. That's why Jesus... As we talked about, he comes into the synagogues and the temples and offends people. If Jesus were to come in here tonight, he might offend us. He probably would. He'd probably have some stuff to say. But because of that gospel, the last thing is that we proclaim Jesus. This is our mission now as a church. Verses 9 and 10. <clears throat> Look how we're, we're described, just to, just to emphasize this. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. See, the but there is an important one. Because Peter just got done saying, the builders rejected the cornerstone, but you, you didn't. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. For, here's our mission, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Hey, well now we're a people. We're the people of God. We're not the smartest. We're not the best. We're not the most righteous. We're not the nicest people, but we're God's people. And he chooses the foolishness of this world to bring to shame the wisdom of the wise. Right? And we're just a bunch of people who know we need a physician. We know we're sick. We know we're sinners. And God is using people like us to get his work done. So let's do it. Let's get his work done. I'm going to close tonight reading from a Jeremiah chapter 7. You should probably turn there because it's a few verses. Jeremiah chapter 7. Because th- this is the importance of, of living as God's church. As we see what Jeremiah has to say to the religious people in that day, and how this is important. Okay, Jeremiah 7. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. So God is telling Jeremiah to stand at the temple and tell people, Don't trust in the temple. you got to fix your ways. You don't trust in coming to church and just doing the church things. you got to fix your ways. 
For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. If there is stuff they got to do, we're not saved by works, but our works show our salvation. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, or walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I have seen it, says the Lord. You're going to come into my temple after what you've done, worshiping other gods. Oh, we don't worship other gods, but we make up a version of God who's not the God he reveals himself to be in this Bible. And we worship that God, the God who just, you know, has nice things to say to us. There's more to him than that. We worship other gods, we commit adultery, steal murder, and then say, he's delivered us to do these abominations. We sin, so grace may abound, right? No, we don't do that. But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, and what you trust, and to this place which I gave to you and your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all of your brethren, the whole prosperity of Ephraim. God is saying, I don't care about the temple. I'm God. I'll destroy this temple. I destroyed the tabernacle. You don't trust in the temple and doing religious things. I am God. Therefore, do not pray for this people. He's telling Jeremiah, don't even pray for these people. Nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession for me, to me. For I will not hear you. Do you not see what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven, and they pour out drink offerings to other gods, that they may provoke me to anger. Do they provoke me to anger, says the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces? These people are coming to the temple, and what they're doing during the week is worshiping other gods. False idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, My anger and my fury will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast, on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat meat. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. He's saying, look, I did, God did not tell you guys to just do religious ritual and say that's it. He said, Obey the voice of the Lord. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have even sent to you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Yet they did not obey me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Therefore you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not obey you. You shall also call to them, but they will not answer you. He said, I've warned them before. Jeremiah, you warn them again. They're not going to listen though. They're stiff-necked people. That's how important it is to be God's temple. Living stones, doing His work, not just trusting in religious routine. I go to church, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, we're new covenant. Yeah, We've talked about that. Don't sin so that grace can abound. See, the problems in the whole church and in this church should not be acceptable to us considering how God has designed the church, church, how important He sees it. So let's stir up one another. If we come to Jesus, we're each living stones, each with gifts and a purpose, but we're useless on our own. 
We're useless if we're not using those gifts. But together we're being built into God's temple. And we're the active participants in it, the holy priesthood. Built on the cornerstone of Jesus to proclaim Jesus. This is important. If you're not a Christian, if you're a dead stone and been faking it, Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You need to know your guilt and repent of your sin. It's not that God has a plan for your life. God has a plan for your eternity. Without Jesus, it's hell. Repent and be forgiven. There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And I would just say, if you don't know how, I don't think you're guilty. I don't think you feel that guilt. If you're a Christian, let's do something. Let's work together in the church, outside of it. Use your gift. Advance the kingdom. Do something. Because we're God's special people, His chosen generation. And this is important. Now let's pray. Well, Father, we we confess to You that we have... Uh, failed in our mission so much. We've taken for granted our special relationship with you, the privilege we have of coming to you boldly, and we've gotten lazy. God, stir us up by your Holy Spirit. Show us what our gifts are, how we can use them, how we can build each other up, how we can work together to advance your kingdom in this town. God, give us wisdom and grace to do this. If there are those who aren't Christians here listening, God, Show them their guilt, offend them, have them stumble over the cornerstone, but then have them turn to you, Jesus, for salvation. Help us to stir up one another, to be honest with each other, and to help each other and love each other. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship or call us at 800-357-4226. Don't forget to catch next week's morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship.